It's like I'm out in a big boat and I see one fellow in a rowboat who's tired of rowing and wants a free ride, and another fellow who's drowning. Who would you expect me to rescue, Mr. Cedar, who's just tired of rowing and wants a free ride, or those men out there who are drowning? Any 10-year-old child will give you the answer to that. All right, fellas, thank you. Sit down. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture in order from the very first award ceremony to someday the present year. I'm one of your hosts, Susan Araslin. I'm the other host, I'm David Dahl. And this week we are continuing the 1936 nominees with the Frank Capra film, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Which was 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 good spoilers was good yeah i mean it's it's funny because i feel like there are movies that we have reviewed that we have said were good but it's always like yeah it was it was pretty good this movie was good it was just very good no caveats no straining for it it was it was a great fucking movie yeah i mean yes it's it's also weird because I had seen the Adam Sandler remake of this movie that came out about 10, 15 years ago, somewhere in like the mid 2000s. And boy, is Adam Sandler ever terrible casting for Mr. Deeds. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't stop thinking about watching this. I was like, who looked at Adam Sandler and was like, yeah, yeah, that's the guy that we want to replace gary cooper yeah on the other hand winona Ryder was great casting for the love interest who's a sort of sassy reporter who goes undercover slash just lies to him to get close to mr deeds and write stories about him and she was very good as that what is fascinating i guess we should sort of talk about the character to explain why adam sandler is terrible casting besides just not looking as handsome as gary cooper which what man i mean he's he's terrible casting not just because he's not as handsome as gary cooper which you can't really fault anyone for Yeah, exactly. He's just not as good of an actor. Let's go through the plot first, and then we can dive into the characters. Yes. Uh, how, Susan, how much did you love the first shot of this movie? The movie opens with a car just racing down the road and then just driving off the side of the road down a cliff. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> with absolutely no context, followed by like 40 newspaper headlines explaining that Martin Simple, who was a, a finance millionaire, has died. And nobody knows who he's left all of his money to. And he died in Italy. Yes. Which doesn't really come up at all, but, well, sort of does. But we then sort of cut very quickly to his lawyer and all the sort of cynical asshole people at the law firm figuring out who actually gets all of the inheritance. They figure out it is... Some guy, I'm not sure they actually name him yet, living in a small town called Mandrake Falls in Vermont. And they go up there and do some like, boy, these small town folks, I sure can't believe them shit. Which is actually really funny. Yes. It varies who's doing it. Cornelius Cobb, who's the sort of ex-newspaper guy, which explains how we get to the newspaper people later, who become important and also becomes sort of Mr. Deeds's body man, is fucking great about it. Oh, and he has the thickest Bronx accent and it's so wonderful. It's ridiculous. I think it, God, um, 
I'm trying to remember the line he does to explain that Babe Bennett was tricking Mr. Deeds. And I think it's something along the lines of, you thought she was sweet on you, but she's been serving you a double scoop of cyanide. (laughs) And it's great. But they all meet Mr. Deeds, who is... Not what they expected. (laughs) No, he is a postcard poem writer and tuba player who's never left Mandrake Falls, and he seems, at first glance, like kind of an unassuming hick who doesn't know anything, but he agrees, after being told that he has inherited $20 million, to, like, go into New York City and sort that all out. In the city, he's huge news, because this is all weird, and $20 million is a lot of money. Particularly... In 1936, because the depression is on, and also just for inflation. Like, it's a, it's kind of an incomprehensible amount of money. <laughs> There's this great bit of business introducing us to our love interest, who is Louise Babe Bennett, and everybody just calls her Babe, which is extremely weird when everybody but your male lead calls the female lead Babe. But it's Babe like the pig, and not Babe like... Hey, sweetheart. Sure, but... It's just her nickname. Yeah, exactly. Not that she is anything like Babe the Pig. I mean, she's, like, small and cute, and she's not a great singer. So in all (laughs) of those ways, she is like Babe the Pig, actually. Okay. Well, now that we've established she is literally identical to Babe the Pig, she's also a newspaper reporter. And her boss really wants stories on Mr. Deeds, but nobody can get close to him, presumably because they're all lazy, because it's super easy to get close to him. But she has this great bit of business where she's just playing with a bit of string in the background, trying to tie it one-handed because she's so bored by her editor's speech. And it's like, there's so many great bits of background business in this movie that are kind of the Frank Capra special, where even when you're in this, like, purely expositionary scene about just, like, it is important for newspapers to have Mr. Deed's stories. Everybody who gets Mr. Deed's stories will be rewarded. Do whatever it takes to get a Mr. Deed's story. There's, like, something entertaining going on on screen anyway. Yeah, and something that establishes something about the character's personality, which I think that's absolutely... That's that's the Capra touch. Yeah. And in Babe's case, it's that, one, she's bored of her job. Also, she doesn't really need to listen to this lecture because she knows she can get it. Yeah, and she does, in fact, have a plan, which is to pretend to faint from exhaustion as sort of a poor damsel in distress who's been walking all day trying to find a job right in front of Mr. Deeds, who she does not know this, but just thinks generally men are like this. But Mr. Deeds in particular has already established he has kind of this fantasy of falling in love with a woman after saving her as a damsel in distress, which is complicated, but also very in character for the way Mr. Deeds is like, kind of interestingly, a little bit of a jerk, but in a way that I kind of want to get into because it's why I think Adam Sandler, more than anything, is terrible casting for this. Because in the new Mr. Deeds, they have him be sweet and wholesome, but then do that Adam Sandler thing where he, like, goes off and destroys an entire room with a golf club or something because he's just this, like, simmering, boiling pot of rage Whereas, like, Mr. Deeds is kind of a jerk. He's, like, so salt of the earth, it's actually super inconvenient for people. Yeah, I mean, I think, I hesitate to say that he's a jerk so much as he's extremely emotional. 
and doesn't have a lot of practice controlling that and that i think is what makes him both charming and also infuriating and makes the character a lot more interesting than if he was just like this purely wholesome never does anything wrong sort of guy or if he was just purely a jerk right like he's always coming to it from a a place of sympathy and empathy really with his fellow man but sometimes too much. <laughs> I don't know, because I think one of the things that is interesting is, especially sort of before the big third act turn, there are a lot of moments where, like, this could so easily fall into, like, the city needs to learn the simple, pure ways of the small town life. And, like, Mr. Deeds is wrong about shit. He's kind of set in his ways, and in some ways, that's extremely good, because, like, a lot of people in New York City are fake assholes, but in some ways it actually is super inconvenient for the people he thinks he is helping. Like, an example is he's just incredibly rude to all of his servants at all times because he's just like, I can do it myself, which is like true, but it's not like he doesn't have servants. It's just that he kind of snaps at him that he can put on his own pants, which is interesting. Yeah, I guess we'll get to that because I'm going to disagree with you. But anyway, he does rescue Babe and she starts writing a basically a daily column about his goofy sort of simple backcountry ways that end up on the front page of the paper and she gives him the nickname Cinderella Man. Meanwhile, there's a bunch of stuff that happens where we see like, oh, Mr. Deeds is so sweet and simple, but also kind of annoying, (laughs) Um, which we'll get into. And his benefactor or his uncle or whoever it was who left him the money, I'm not precisely sure what Simple's relationship was to him. But the attorney is really pressuring him to give him power of attorney because he wants to have control over this $20 million. There's also like a side plot where he has a cousin who feels like they should have gotten the money instead. And so they're like scheming with the attorney to try to get it. And what they hit upon is that they can charge him as being mentally incompetent. And as proof, they will use Babe's newspaper articles and the fact that Mr. Deeds has decided to spend all $20 million on buying farms for homeless families, like thousands of farmers. <laughs> this plan, you can tell, almost immediately wouldn't work because he's kind of proved himself to be savvy a couple of times, like surprisingly savvy a couple of times by this point. But he is also super distraught because he has learned that Babe is Babe and not Mary Dawson, who's the woman she's been presenting herself as and who he's fallen in love with. And so he's like distraught to the point of total silence at the start of the trial. Yeah, like he's not even going to defend himself at all. Then the trial sequence happens, which is again something that is so much in the details that we'll get into it. But finally, his love for Babe and his realization that she loves him too gives him the inspiration to defend himself and he wins the trial and kisses Babe, the end. (laughs) And like, again, it's so much in the details of how that all works. Like their courtship has so many fun scenes in it. There's this scene where they go to a fancy restaurant and he's made fun of by all of these famous, very thinly parodied literary figures that he admires and kind of talks back to them and ends up punching one of them in the face. 
they're like the Algonquin round table, right? Like that's what they're supposed to be. Yes, for sure. Okay. <laughs> though though there's no Dorothy Parker, they're all men. Yeah. Which like nice touch, Frank Capra, I guess, for being like, <laughs> no, only men would be this level of jerkish. And it's like, well, Dorothy Parker was the queen. <laughs> yeah. Then that leads into one of the Algonquin Roundtable members, I forget who he's, which one he is parodying, deciding he really likes Mr. Deeds because, like, there's sort of no artifice here. Here's a guy who, like, lays it all out. And he actually asks him to punch him in the face. Like, he's envious that he didn't get socked. And he goes off with Mr. Deeds and they get incredibly drunk the first time in Mr. Deeds' life he's ever been drunk. They apparently strip naked and announce that they're going back to nature and Mr. Deeds starts feeding a horse donuts to see how many donuts it would like. Before it asks for a cup of coffee. Yes. <laughs> Which are just like great details for here is the drunken night out that embarrasses him thing instead of you had a drunken night out that embarrassed you. There's also just like small scenes that don't even have that much plot importance. There's this weird scene that I loved where... Mr. Deeds, I forget why he's gone out into the huge foyer of this uh, mansion he's inherited, but he realizes that there's a large echo in the room and demands one of the servants starts also experimenting with the echo. And then a couple of other guys come out of their rooms because it's very late at night and they all get super into it. Like, there actually was a plot function at the start of that scene, and it gets completely derailed by everybody just being really into an echo. And it's great. Oh, yeah. It's something where he is playing his tuba, and his butler, or I don't know, he has, like, three servants. And I'm never quite sure, like, who has a specific job. It seems to me that there's one of them that is, like, the head of the household but someone comes in and says he has a telephone call from i think from the attorney and he's like never bother me when i'm playing the tuba i told you never to bother me and the servant is like yeah but the guy is on the phone and wants to talk to you which results in mr deans putting the tuba down and chasing him out of the room and halfway down the stairs which is the point where he runs back up the stairs and realizes that there's an echo. Yeah. Which I guess has a plot point, but feels more to me like a character development thing. I mean, I guess the plot point is that the attorney is trying to do something before they go to the extravagant lengths of having him declared mentally incompetent. Again, that's kind of already been established. And the same with the sort of character beat of this, of like both the way that Mr. Deeds can get sort of excited by strange things, like he's repeatedly excited by fire trucks, which was probably still weird, but less weird in 1936. Why less weird in 1936? I don't know the history of fire trucks. I imagine they're newer. You wouldn't have fire trucks in a small town in 1936. Oh, like motorized ones, as opposed to like a cart. Yes, exactly. And so, like, he, when there's an actual automobile fire truck going by in New York, he, like, stops and wants to go see it. So, like, both the character and plot beats of that scene are have kind of already been covered, which means it's just kind of this scene that's there because him and all these other guys being really excited by an echo is fun. And it is fun. 
And it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few points in his courtship with Babe that are actually really hilarious. I mean, like, there's the touching scene where they go to Grant's tomb, which whenever anybody asks if he wants to go to New York or, like, tells him that they're going to do fun stuff once he's in New York, it's always like, well, I've always wanted to see Grant's tomb. And then he gives this really earnest speech about why Grant was great. Which is both, like, I guess this was before we started the, like, 50-year project is shitting on Grant, (laughs) but also just plays as, like, this really earnest anti-racist sentiment from Mr. Deeds. There's a lot of stuff in here politically that is so beautifully threaded through it that it it doesn't feel like you're being hit over the head with the politics of it, but it's, like, very left-wing. It's extremely anti-capitalist. I mean, in, in the 30s, like, you've got this whole Confederate pride revival still going pretty hardcore in the South. And he's giving this whole speech about how Grant was great because he broke Robert E. Lee's heart. Yeah, it's a really interesting scene. <laughs> it's also really interesting because he kind of gives this whole thing of, like, Babe says that most people are disappointed by Grant's tomb because it's it's not huge. It is not one of those, like, oh, holy shit monuments like the Washington Monument or like the Lincoln Memorial or any of those in, in Washington. I mean, it's still pretty big, but it's not, like, holy crap. It's also, like, for New York, it's not the thing that people are like, oh, man, let's go to New York and see Grant's tomb. Yeah. <laughs> like, you come to see... Well, I guess the Empire State Building. No, it was built at that point. To see that or Times Square or whatever. And he's like, no, I want to go uptown to 110th Street or whatever and see a monument on a hill. Yeah. And like, what's great is that after Babe is like, yeah, most people are disappointed. And he gives this big speech about like, I'm not disappointed. Like, I see Grant in this and Grant was one of the greatest Americans and yada, 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 yada. She's won over by his earnestness. They like wander into the tomb and one of the two guys that's following them around photographing them leans out of the cab and goes, that's it? (laughs) Which is great. Is this the point also where they sit on the bench? Yes. Okay, yeah. So here's the first of the very funny things that happens during their courtship. She tells like a touching story about how she's from a small town too and her dad used to take her fishing and then somehow this leads to her saying that her dad taught her how to play the drums but the only song she really can play is Swanee River which she then plays and sings along to by like beating with sticks on a bronze plaque I guess is what it is. I think it's a trash can. Oh, okay. That's even better. (laughs) And she does keep the beat, like, pretty well, but she is a dreadful singer (laughs) in a way that is really charming and cute. And instead of calling her out on it, he's like, let's do it again. And then he, like, plays the tuba, quote unquote, by doing, like, boom, 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 boom. And they do the whole verse over again. Which, like, the second time around is so excessive, it's hilarious. That's also kind of the the turn where she starts earnestly falling in love with him. I mean, if I sang like that and nobody said anything bad about it, so would I. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's, like, little, there's points before that where, like, she clearly admires him, but that's kind of the point where you start seeing her give all the facial expressions of, like, oh, what have I done? <laughs> because she's, you know, constantly betraying him by writing these articles that portray him as a buffoon. Also, 
She's staying with... I'm not clear who she actually is. I know that, like, in the made-up Mary Dawson story, she's Mary's sister. But I'm not sure who this woman Louise is staying with actually is. Like, just a friend? I Yeah, I wasn't clear on that either, because she mentions it to her editor. She's like, I'm staying with Maud Dawson. Is that someone related to the newspaper in some way? Or just, like... She's so close to her editor that her editor, like, knows what she means when she mentions one of her friends. Yeah. It's a person. Mabel Dawson, not Maud, sorry. Yes. Also, Mabel has a powerful lesbian energy because she stays in her apartment all day drawing pictures of what looks like Louise. I know they're for, like, fashion stuff, but, like, all of them have Louise's haircut, which I think is mostly there is kind of this fascinating background bit of, like, whenever Louise goes home, she has to stare at herself over and over again without doing the actual literal, like, mirrors everywhere for her to, like, contemplate herself. You know, I did not even realize that, but now that you've mentioned it, you're so right. Like, all of the things that she draws look like Babe. Maybe that's how they know each other. Like, maybe Babe is just her model. Yeah. There is some definite strong queer energy coming off of Mabel Dawson. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I have a spare room in my apartment for another gal to crash in. Now that my my roommate moved out after 10 years and it was very tragic and difficult for me but just my roommate yeah it's definitely like this isn't like they slipped this one past the haze code like this is definitely you're reading into it a little bit but like when you read into it she's a pretty fun character because she's also super duper competent there's a great scene where like she has to hide the two photographers behind a couch and keep up the sort of mary dawson story when Mr. Deeds unexpectedly shows up at their apartment. And she's great in that scene. She does manage to, with only her foot, keep them hidden behind a couch. Uh, And at one point, she sort of, like, kicks one of them. And because they're on their hands and knees facing each other, he, like, ends up headbutting the other one. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of really good physical comedy in this. Which brings me to the second really funny thing that happens in their courtship. Which happens right after this. So Babe is like, fine, I'll go for a walk with you. And they go for a walk. And she is like very, very distressed because she is going to have to leave or like go away. Sorry, I just remembered how the scene ends and I'm so excited (laughs) because it's so great. Sorry. And uh, no, 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 that's great. So they're like walking along and, and then he takes her home. And he gives her a poem and says, you don't have to read it right now or answer me tonight. You can just, um, I'll just, I'll, I'll just get your answer tomorrow. And she, of course, opens it and reads it. And it's this absolutely gorgeous shot. I mean, Frank Capra does, he's so damn good. She's on like the top of the steps of the brownstone where Mabel lives. And he's standing at the bottom and he's like nine feet tall. <laughs> And she's like five. So they're they're eye to eye for once. <laughs> or he's a little bit shorter. And she reads the poem and like can barely get through it without crying. It's very good acting on both of their parts. And essentially the poem is him proposing to her. She gives him the answer and says yes. She doesn't quite. She starts to open her mouth and is very clearly like about to kiss him <laughs> when he flips out yeah he's like all excited he feels like it's definitely gone well oh i don't 
I that was not quite my read about why he does the thing that he does. Oh, or is it just really that he's like, I'm not prepared. I, I need it. It's like when you call someone and you're expecting to get voicemail. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I said tomorrow. I can't handle it tonight. <laughs> That's what I think it is because she's about to answer. She has given every single possible nonverbal indication that she is going to say yes that you can imagine. But he still flips out, runs down the stairs, accidentally <laughs> hits one of his legs on a nearby car, knocks over a trash can, keeps running, goes around the corner and a Apparently, off-screen slams directly into a guy who starts yelling at him. And then knocks over another trash can that you hear <laughs> off-screen. And like, and I- when he trips over the trash can, it's amazing. Because Gary Cooper is very tall and very long-legged. So, of course, he like trips over it three extra times. The commitment to of Gary Cooper to looking like a graceless 11-year-old boy... <laughs> Is just so hilarious. Yeah, it's somehow more funny because he's so elegant and handsome. <laughs> you then sort of cut to him trying to make sure absolutely everything is perfect for T the next day when she's going to give her answer. When uh, Cornelius Cobb, the extremely Bronx-accented body man we were talking about earlier, comes in and says that all of the Babe Bennett stories are actually being written by who he thinks is Mary and does the double dose of cyanide line. I mean, I realize that we're like so close to the end or at least the end of the second act and we can go back and talk about the other stuff too. But this is such an affecting scene for me for three reasons. One, that they don't sit with that, that they don't have like, oh, well, he'll confront her over lunch or whatever, but that Cobb is like, bring the phone. We're calling the whatever the the paper is right now, and we're going to talk to her right now. I thought that was actually really impressive, and it showed a lot of Cobb's character, which is that he does really care about Mr. Deeds because he's not going to let him sit in this deception on Babe's part for a second longer. He's not going to let her come over and charm him out of it. But I also think it's it's a reason why the movie works so well on a plot level, because traditionally what happens then is like at the end of the second act, you sort of find out the romantic comedy deception and the thing they're going to need to work out for the whole third act. And that still kind of happens, but instead you end up making room for this whole plot line about the dispossessed farmer and all the dispossessed farmers and this plan of what Mr. Deeds wants to do with his fortune that creates all of this plot business that's really interesting and is because of the depression from finding out about Babe, not completely unrelated, but also keeps Act 3 from being this interminable, like, well, we need to put, like, more and more barriers in the way of them making up. Right. Because we have 40 minutes left in the movie and they can't, like, make out again until 38 minutes into that. (laughs) Yep. Uh, The other thing that is just so affecting about it for me is the way that it is shot, because you get this back and forth between Babe at the newspaper and Gary Cooper in his home on the phone, and she, she is very, very good. And when Jean Arthur first comes on screen and she has this kind of like breathy baby voice, I was like, ugh, I don't like her. And she very quickly turned that around for me. But she is obviously trying to do everything that she can to not admit it and saying like, you know, 
I'll, I'll explain everything when I come over for lunch. And he keeps sort of insisting and pushing that she admit it. And Gary Cooper, who for most of this movie has looked like pretty stone-faced most of the time, looks absolutely devastated. And the way that his eyes can, like, get sad is... It's, it's just remarkable. <laughs> it's like, did they put... They had to have put glycerin in his eyes to make them glow like that. <laughs> I guess. Or maybe it's just that good. Maybe. I don't know. Because it's... it. I completely agree that it is... You really get... Mr. Deed's immediate reaction once she does admit it is he's just going to pack up and go back home. Like, he's just done. Yeah. That doesn't end up happening, which we'll get into, but he completely sells. This is just the end. Yeah. The only thing that stops it from being the end is, I'm going to say the movie's MVP. <laughs> what up, desperate farmer? Yeah, John Ray as a dispossessed farmer who has barged his way into Mr. Deed's mansion because he's read all of these news reports about all the frivolous ways he's wasting this fortune while the farmer's family starves to death and threatens Mr. Deeds with a gun. I love that this is a way to bring in a callback to the donut for the horse bit. Yeah. But without it being funny, it's like the, because they invoke this a number of times. And this is the only time where it's like, he says something like, you fed donuts to a horse? Did you ever think about feeding those donuts to people? Yeah. And it's like, oh shit. There is a way that that's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's super interesting because it because you laughed along to it earlier of just like, oh, it's hilarious feeding donuts to a horse. And then it's like, this rich motherfucker has gone around feeding donuts to a horse. And you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> that's right. We're in the middle of the depression. Yeah. And Mr. Deeds, of course, doesn't even talk him down. The guy kind of talks himself out of it. Can't bring himself to shoot Mr. Deeds. Deeds offers to let the guy eat the lunch he was going to have with Babe and just sort of watches him and thinks and decides on this plan where he's going to spend the $20 million fortune buying up thousands of acres of land and then giving them in 10 acre allotments to any family that'll work on them for three years. This, of course, leads to like thousands and thousands of people storming the mansion and trying to apply for one of these allotments. There's an absolutely fantastic scene of him, like, incredibly tired, trying to approve all of these people and learning he's only approved, like, what, like 500 and something of them and just going like, gee, like... That's it? I think it's 892. I watched this movie twice just because I liked it so much, which never happens. Yeah. And then he says, oh, gosh, oh, more than 1,100 to go. Yeah. And I was like, shit, that's intense. And they've set up the big entryway, the big echoey entryway with these desks. And all of his servants are basically now like administrative assistants who are processing these applications. And it's really impressive how fast they get it up and running. But I've also been in that state of like breakup depression where you're like, I'm going to be really industrious so that I don't have to think about my feelings. <laughs> so I related to that. One of the things I don't think the movie really intends as a read, but I think is really fascinating is at one point in the trial, they bring in a clearly presented as like a charlatan psychiatrist. Oh, that guy is great. <laughs> to diagnose Mr. Deeds with manic depression. And a little bit the dude has a point. I mean, a little bit also like who wouldn't like in this scenario, like 
who wouldn't go from really high to really low and back again a little bit. It's not pathological, it's just grief. Right. He's still very clearly suffering from the revelation about Babe, but he is sort of powering through on this project to distract himself, but also, like, is at the end of his rope because this is so much friggin' work. And it's at that point that the cops come in and arrest him on the order of the shitty attorney who's trying to get control of the fortune. Where do we know the shitty attorney from? That actor is so familiar. That's a really good question. Uh, Or am I just like confusing him with somebody else? He does just look like a bunch of other dudes. Uh, But I'm trying to see if there's anything... Oh, he was the district attorney and I am a fugitive from a chain gang. Okay. He has been our shitty voice of authority that doesn't care about the rules as long as they get ahead in a movie before. Oh, God, he's also the fucking Muslim bad guy in Lives of a Bengal Lancer. Yeah, so that's a weird thing. There is a lot of crossover specifically from I'm a fugitive from a chain gang and Lives of a Bengal Lancer in this movie. (laughs) Which just seems like a bizarre combination of movies that would have multiple actors from them. I mean, obviously, Gary Cooper was in Bengal Lancer, the movie that we pretend doesn't exist. Yeah, it is weird because they're not even the same studio. And we've never seen that kind of crossover before. We do know this, though, from some behind the scenes stuff about it happened one night and Lady for a Day that Capra was super duper particular about his actors and would trade around to other studios to get the people he wanted. Yeah. So maybe it's just like, these are people he's liked working with in the past or liked performances from. I wouldn't put it past Frank Capra to have seen I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang go, that jerk is pretty much like the jerk in my movie. (laughs) That's the jerk for me. Yeah. John Ray was in I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Was he the, like, just friendly guy who for some reason never wanted to escape himself? No, but he was one of the, just like one of the nice prisoners there. He wasn't specifically the, I know the one you're talking about, like the main good guy in I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Yeah. The older guy who's like, let me help you escape, but I'm just gonna hang out here for my 20 years. And you're like, go with him. Yeah. You can go. (laughs) maybe that was it but still that's like you know two from each is interesting i like that frank capra was respected enough and with good reason to just be like look i'm gonna make this movie but you're gonna have to like they always say borrow from the studio but i'm pretty sure that it was like renting them from the other studio yeah i always kind of thought it was like an exchange thing of like i'll take this star you you get one star for one of your movies or something but yeah. And uh, Mr. Semple, actually, I didn't realize this until right now, was King Wesley and it happened one night. Huh. And they look nothing alike in those two movies. No. I mean, he looks like 20 years older in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm like totally getting us off topic on actors. No, no, no. It's, it's fine. I just like, I'm, I also want to get us off topic briefly mm. and talk about how much better the movie is because of the different plans of what they want to do with the fortune than the modern Mr. Deeds because the thing he is being declared mentally incompetent for in the modern Mr. Deeds is he just wants to give all the 20 million dollars to all the people in Mandrake Falls which is actually kind of shitty yeah I mean like I guess it's less shitty than just like a Wall Street investment firm having the money 
but I just lucked out and got $20 million, so I'm just going to, like, give it to this small town instead. And, like, very clearly they use it to buy frivolous things they don't need. Oh, so he does do it. He starts to do it. No, he does. He succeeds in doing it, just like Mr. Deeds in this one succeeds in his plan of the 10-acre farms. He succeeds in just giving the $20 million to Mandrake Falls. Well. Which takes away (laughs) all of the interesting commentary that you get in the trial scene, where, like, they sort of make a lot of the expected arguments. They bring up Babe's articles. They sort of say he's too eccentric and can't be trusted with the estate. But they also specifically bring up that his plan is too disruptive to American capitalism. That obviously the man is insane, because right now of all times, you can't just go around giving people farms, the entire economy would collapse. Right, because you can't have mortgages if people just just have stuff. Right. The movie very clearly fucking hates the dude making that argument, but that adds this fascinating layer of both it lets you in on what the trial is actually about, because <laughs> they all know all the manic depression stuff that they try. Right. These two eccentric ladies from Mandrake Falls come in and accuse him of being pixelated, which means a very different thing in the 30s. I mean, it just means super eccentric. Touched by the fairies. Yes. They know all of those accusations are kind of bullshit. But they will occasionally let slip that actually the problem is he's wasting the money on poor people instead of letting us have it. It is actually really interesting how blatant that is. And it felt pretty refreshing, actually, to me to have that spelled out. That, like, not only is it that Cedar as an individual wants to get his hands on this money, but that the financial services community writ large has a problem with this. And that the baking industry is an unseen but represented by Cedar villain in the movie. There's a lot of scenes we've kind of skipped over or not talked about at length, like a scene with the board of trustees of this opera company, a scene with a crook lawyer who's trying to get money out of Mr. Deeds. There's a lot of stuff that's very subtly and smartly done about the way that money forces you into being a rich person or tries to that money sort of has a structure and power of its own without being like a huge bummer or a like didactic big short style film about that right there are just all of these moments where like the structure of capitalism and of being rich in capitalism intrudes on his life in fascinating ways mo money mo problems yeah but not even mo money more problems but like mo money means acting a certain way right right part of his problems are that he isn't very good at acting those certain ways but part of his problems are like sometimes he's fine at acting those certain ways but he doesn't want to the opera company is an interesting one it's like his first day or something in new york or at least like very early when he gets there And the board of trustees wants to meet with him and they immediately are like, great, now that you have the $20 million, you're chairman of the board, which is fascinating because having worked at a nonprofit, that kind of is the way that it works. You don't put someone as chairman of the board because they're a great leader. You put their money as chairman of the board. (laughs) And they immediately ask him for like $18,000, I think is what it is. It's a lot of money, whatever it is, but it's not... I mean, compared to what he actually has, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. (laughs) And he's like, why do you need that much money? And the opera company is like, well, the opera doesn't make any money. 
And he says, well, why don't you put on good shows and charge for tickets? And their response is, oh, that's not the way that it works. <laughs> Specifically to the put on things people want to see part, which is really like, yeah, I don't know. I felt I felt a little I felt a little attacked for Capra. Like sometimes theater just needs money. <laughs> I kind of felt the same way. And later on, they stress that like. If that's their mission, then why are you charging at all? Why are you making it exclusive at all? I will pay money for like large public productions of opera that people can get free tickets to. But subsidizing a like $90 a ticket opera company that rich people go to, I have no interest in. And we get that understanding because he has a reception or something for the opera company and they're hosting their big prima donna. It's basically like the Met Opera Gala, not the Met Museum Gala. That's a different thing. And you realize that the people that they're catering to can absolutely afford to be paying higher ticket prices so that it doesn't have to be subsidized. But of course, that would make them mad. Yeah. Back to the end of the film. I mean, it's a Frank Capra movie, so it's all paced absolutely great. And right at the exact final moment when you just think there's no hope left and he's doomed, Babe tells him she loves him and he snaps out of his stupor and gives a really extremely good monologue. <laughs> dismantling every part of the argument against him. The judge declares him not only sane, but the sanest man that's ever walked into the courtroom. After he punches the lawyer in the face, which I think is great, because that's just such a- Wait, is, is that after? Oh, yeah. He punches the lawyer in the face. The judge goes off to deliberate and comes back. And after he has punched a lawyer in the face- Calls him the sanest person who's ever walked into the courtroom. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because the judge says, is there anything else that you would like to say after your defense or something to that effect? And Gary Cooper says, oh, there is one more thing. And then punches Cedar in the face. He like hauls off and punches him as well. Yeah, there's a- And I was okay with it. <laughs> yeah, there's also a great thing in that scene where they do a little bit of an explanation. They do a thing I wish more courtroom scenes would do, where Babe specifically calls out that like, this is not how a court hearing should work. And they're like, oh, this is a like weird non-standard hearing specifically because it's about his mental competence. And I just think it's a great thing to just go like, yes, we know the law doesn't work like this, but we are going to shout overruled all the time, just randomly, when people need to have a line. I don't know. I agree with you. Like, she actually calls them on railroading him. And what's interesting is I don't feel like the judge is actually trying to railroad him. He just seems to think that it's sort of an open and shut case, so why even bother? Because deeds won't talk, so clearly he actually is so laconically depressive that Cedar is right. And he offers him like multiple times, are you sure you don't want to defend yourself? And he doesn't even respond. I mean, he just looks dejected in that way that Gary Cooper can look that breaks your heart into a billion pieces. <laughs> I think one of the things that is a tightrope act that Frank Capra manages to walk is like, it is very clear that this plan would not work if Mr. Deeds was not depressed, if he was how he was in the first half of the movie. That, like, it isn't that the deck is so fully stacked against him. The worry is it's going to be too late when he snaps out of it, not, oh, they've framed him up too good for him to ever escape. You know, you mentioned that it's obvious that were he not in this deep state of grief over Babe that he would get out of it. They sort of plant that seed really smartly 
early on when the lawyer for his cousin and his cousin's wife, who's like, we've been waiting around for that guy to kick the bucket for years and we were going to be on easy street, which she literally says easy street like twice. Yeah, she literally not only says we were going to be on easy street. She says we were going to be on easy street. You hear me? Easy street, which is fantastic in case you were confused about the address <laughs> it is this <laughs> but he shows up at deeds's house early on and he's trying to pull this oh well your uncle had a common law wife of 20 years or something and there's a kid and deeds's initial reaction is like oh well of course the money should go to the wife and the kid if he had a wife and a kid then he goes into the opera meeting and he comes out and the lawyer is like, yeah, so when do we get the money? And Deeds is like, well, there is no wife and there is no kid. So no. Do you think I'm that gullible? This is obviously bullshit. It's specifically that the guy goes, we'd be happy to settle for $1 million. Oh, yeah. Because at first he's like, we want all of it. Then he says $7 million. And then he's like, yeah, you know, just one is fine. Yeah. I, I guess. Mr. Deeds hauls off and punches him in the face. No, doesn't punch him in the face, but does like bodily throw him out of the room and says like, obviously this is a con because why would you accept $1 million if you're entitled to 10? And then right before the trial begins, when he's actually sitting on the stand already, Cobb, who, by the way, have we mentioned his name is Cornelius Cobb, but everyone calls him Corny Cobb? I feel like that's important. <laughs> There's so many of those. It's like the, the cousin is the cousins are named Mr. and Mrs. Simple, but spelled S-E-M-P-L-E. The doctor is Dr. Von Holler, but everyone pronounces it like Valhalla, and he's like this very, very German Freud archetype. <laughs> God, they, also, like... <laughs> Nikki and I just wanted to to print out that manic depressive chart that he brings out, <laughs> both because it's just a fantastic chart. It's just, I mean, it's just like a, a sine wave going from manic down to depressive and back a bunch of times with a like small band in the middle that's labeled rational or normal. There's also this great bit of staging where when Mr. Deeds finally does decide to, to defend himself, he's got to get up out of the chair he's in and scoot directly in front of that giant chart and kind of side-eye it. Yeah, it's great. But yeah, right before the trial starts, sorry, I got us totally sidetracked by the names. Corny Cobb comes up and says that Cedar is willing to call the whole thing off to settle for a million dollars. And that's a big part of his defense once he says, like, look, here are all the ways in which the various people who are testifying against me were wrong. But also, like, clearly if I was a threat to myself or other people, then Cedar wouldn't have just said, forget it, I'll take a million bucks and you can walk with the rest. It's his final big reveal in his defense. The coup de grace. Is that Cedar had, yes. As we've mentioned, it works. He's the sanest man ever. <laughs> Which might be a bit of a stretch, Judge May. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mostly, I just thought that was such a great burn on Cedar. You're the sadest man who's ever been here because you punched the lawyer. <laughs> the whole crowd, which is largely made up of the out-of-work farmers, loses it. 
they've like in a good way despite being threatened with arrest for doing so yeah they actually literally riot and they have torn most of mr deeds suit off by the time you see him again he rushes back into the courtroom and like locks them all out there's this brief moment where they try to pretend like he's not gonna come back for babe but fucking come on <laughs> right and it's mostly just so that you can have this great bit where he runs ahead of this huge crowd of people who want to celebrate that he's been found innocent with half his clothes torn off and locks the door behind him so the two of them kiss and escape together. And that's the end of the film. Something that we haven't talked about that's actually really lovely in this movie, which is Babe's relationship with her male editor, who is totally a hard ass. He's like a DC comic book editor. Oh, yeah. He's Perry White, for sure. Yeah. But... He has a really tender relationship with her that is in no way creepy or sexual to the point where she's fallen in love and she knows and she doesn't want to do this anymore. She sits on his lap crying like a little girl and he puts his arm around her and he's like, is it as bad as all that? And there's no like, oh God, this is so gross. I think what makes it not gross is that he is really respectful of what she wants there's a brief moment right when she first tries to quit where he's like come on it's not like that is it and she's like no it is and he's like oh shit like immediately yeah yeah there's no like it's just a story push through blah blah he totally respects her work he totally respects her and even though the age difference is not enough he's obviously older than she is but like maybe what 10 years probably <laughs> yeah there is like a, a nice sort of father daughter or maybe like big brother little sister relationship and he holds her hand throughout the whole trial and again that doesn't feel creepy it feels like he's supporting this woman that he really cares about as a human he also has this great moment in the trial where he pops up and confesses that like I'm her editor. I know all of those stories were bullshit. We did try and make him look like an idiot. That's my job, and I did it. That has nothing to do with who this guy is. And the judge is like, if you want to give your two cents, you'll need to sit in the stand. And he goes, I already did, and sits back down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was such a lovely, a lovely moment. And again, like, points to the thing that you were saying about how, like, there's all of these things in movie trials where it's like people just pop up to say their thing and then it's like, objection, overruled, or I'm going to hold you in contempt of court or whatever. And this like points it out and then he's like, no, nah, it's fine because I already did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you have some issues with Mr. Deans being kind of a jerk. I, kind of a jerk is maybe a weird framing of it, but I do think one of the big things is he definitely has the right intentions, but I think one of the big things about that scene with the dispossessed farmer is that those intentions finally get matched up with genuine empathy in the form of like genuinely thinking about where other people are coming from on this. I think he has a sort of moral compass guiding him through the whole movie. Right. But sometimes that moral compass is inconvenient for not just assholes, but very kind people who are trying to help him. Like his servants. Yes. He's not polite about the ways in which he tells them not to be obsequious. You're right. When the guy like gets down on his knees to try to help him into his pants, what I sort of read that as was like him saying, you know, I'm not a king. You don't need to bow before me and I can put my pants on by myself. This is absurd. This is beneath your dignity. But he does snap at him. And the guy's just doing the job that he's probably done for Deeds' uncle for like 
30 years. He doesn't know any other way. <laughs> One of the things that's also kind of weird about him is through the first two acts, he kind of gets used to having servants. Right. By the time you're doing that scene where he's getting the lunch with Babe ready, he's really comfortable just going like, no, not those flowers, get other flowers. What are we having? And, you know, that's right before the farmer shows up. So I think there's a real case to be made that like you're supposed to read him as, as kind of getting too comfortable in this wealth. That's a really good point because he has started out with this whole like, I don't want the money. It's It just seems to be bringing me more problems than it is anything else. As the movie goes on, it becomes clear that, yeah, more money, more problems, but also in a lot of ways, less problems. Yeah. Like, you just have more responsibilities, but, like, your kids aren't starving like this farmer. At the beginning of the movie, when they go to Mandrake Falls, he does have a housekeeper, but, like, that's not quite the same as having a staff in a mansion in New York City. The juxtaposition of this luncheon where he, I mean, the place looks like most people's weddings look in how it's outfitted. And he's like, oh, not that plate or whatever. Like, he's very picky about the table. And even though he doesn't know the word for the food that Babe likes, which happens to be like foie gras pâté, <laughs> he knows to ask for this expensive thing that she really likes in order to impress her. And the farmer, like, brings him back to his moral compass, to the person that he was when he got here. Yeah. The scene with the farmer eating the lunch, there's a little detail in that scene that really, really pulled at me. Because the farmer is just eating all of this food very, very quickly and getting all of it down while they're having a discussion about, like, what it is that people need. But mostly Mr. Deeds is just watching him and the guy is just eating. And at one point he says, can I take some of this home? And he says, sure, whatever. And the farmer stops eating and you realize he's been eating so fast and so much because he doesn't know when his next meal is coming from or if he can take it with him. And that killed me. Right as you start to think, this is kind of morally weird in some way, because the farmer has like referenced his starving family several times and is like going in on this chicken. Right as you start to think like, boy, he's really eating like all of that is when he says it. And it doesn't play as like he doesn't care about his family. It plays as I was so hungry. I just had to eat all this chicken before it occurred to me. My family is also starving. The other moment of that is there's a sort of sweet moment when Mr. Deeds, while he's processing all the applications, realizes he hasn't eaten all day. And one of the guys waiting in line just gives him his sandwich out of a brown paper bag. And Mr. Deeds takes it and starts eating it, and it's a nice man of the people moment that he doesn't really think about it. Right. But then you think, like, you could just have lunch whenever you want, dude. Why are you taking this guy's sandwich? And right as you think that, he orders Cornelius to have the servants make lunch for everybody waiting in line. Oh, and the shot that Capra makes there, the composition of it is so beautiful, because you see him take a bite of the sandwich, and he's chewing it, and he smiles... He very rarely smiles in this movie. And when he does, it's like so warm and genuine and beautiful. And his eyes get a little sparkly because he's tearing up or whatever at the generosity of this person who is poor. And then you shoot back to the line of people who are all waiting to be processed. And there's a little bit of shuffling. And you see people being like, oh, man, I'd really like to eat a sandwich, too. And you see that revelation happen for gary cooper and then he orders the sandwiches and of course cordy is like oh god we got to do this for everybody <laughs> yeah 
do they get their sandwiches? Because it's immediately after that that he gets arrested. God, and I was a... like, where are the fucking sandwiches for all these poor people? I did also kind of think to myself, though, that like, oh, that's going to save a lot of work on the servants because there's like four of them and there's 2000 of these guys. Oh, I just figured they were going to, like, rig up the Second Avenue Deli or something. That makes sense. But still, that's a lot of sandwiches even for a deli to make. Yeah. Like, at once. <laughs> like, a bodega probably makes 2,000 sandwiches a day in a really busy part of New York, but in one order. Yeah. But let us rate and review this movie before the podcast is longer than the movie itself. Right. That's a good idea. Um... I, I'm going to give it a 10. I'm I'm going to give it a 10. I've been kind of struggling. There's stuff I could say there. D- despite the like Grant speech, there are no African-Americans in this movie whatsoever, which is a little weird for New York. There's reasons I could dock points if I just wanted to go like, well, it's technically not perfect, but like I want to give this movie a 10. Uh, and so I'm going to. Yeah. I I totally agree with you. And I had that thought. It's the depression. You've got a number of poor people who are coming to ask money from this person. It's New York City. How is there not a single black person in all of New York City in the 30s? Like even as a waiter or something. Yeah. When I started to really think about it, and I don't think that the move, I don't think that this was the intention. And I'm not going to give Capra or anyone else this credit. But I would imagine that in the 30s, it would be very difficult for out-of-work black farmers to trust that a white guy was going to give them anything. Yeah. But I don't think that that was why they were left out. Yeah, I'm, I I think they just, like... They just didn't do it. I think the Grant speech was just as much as Frank Capra wanted to bother with anti-racism, which is a lot more than a lot of other films we've watched have wanted to bother with anti-racism. But there's a significant amount more he could have done. Uh, but that's fine. Eh. It's not what the movie is about. No. The movie is a statement about capitalism. So, yeah, I, I'm comfortable giving it a 10. We have our first perfect movie. Or our first 10. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, with that single exception that there are no non-white people in this movie, though, it was banned in Germany because Hitler thought that there were non-Aryans in the cast. So, like, it does at least have going for it that Hitler hated it. Yeah. It's just a tight, perfect little movie. There's no weird sexism in it like there was in It Happened One Night, which I still love. In the same way as with the Grant's Tomb stuff, I think it kind of a little bit lucks out on the sexism too, because like the fact that he kind of has a fetish for damsels in distress is kind of weird, but also it's played as kind of weird and it's played as a thing that goes badly for him. I don't know if that's the intention or if that's just kind of how it worked out in the plot, but like that is how it worked out. I feel like it is the intention in the sense that his whole like fantasy life and, and his idealism Uh, That that is a vulnerability for him, that it is a good thing that he has because he like wants to help all of these farmers, but it's also something that can be taken advantage of and that there needs to be a balance and that until he finds that balance, he is going to be open to corruption and destruction. Should you watch this movie? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. This is like the first, if you have not watched this movie, you should watch this movie. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. <laughs> I really, I don't even have a caveat for you. I don't have a, like, if you hate Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper doesn't actually look a whole lot like Gary Cooper in the first, like, act of this movie. Um, there's just nothing. 
that you can say that like no i mean he's like nine years older than he was in wings when you're like oh my god who is that incredibly gorgeous nihilist who is about to die yeah and he is definitely wearing all nine years of it but i yeah i mean there's there is i i yeah i guess if you hated gary cooper I mean, I think even if you hated Gary Cooper is what I'm saying is like... If you have a long-standing blood feud from <laughs> yeah your ancestors, I mean, yeah, that, that would be a, a reason to not. <laughs> I've forgiven him for a farewell to arms, and we never mentioned Bengal Lancer ever again. I had never quite scrolled down far enough on the page to read that Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was intended as a direct sequel to this movie originally, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Which we'll get to, I guess, when we watch Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is also a great movie. And it's like, I mean, not not soon, soon, but we will get through it in 2019. Yeah. So yeah, ne- next week. Yeah. We're, we're done? <laughs> But this podcast has only been 500 hours long. Oh, Christ. Now we're watching San Francisco. Oh, man. So I actually have read up, not like a lot about it, but I like read the very quick description on Wikipedia and the idea of a musical comedy set in the middle of a San Francisco earthquake. uh, That just seems rife with problem <laughs> that's actually so bonkers i'm really looking forward to it though i think that's going to be one of those things like that what was that tv show called like cop rock that tried to do like a cop procedural musical in like the 90s and crashed and burned and like it makes sense it crashed and burned it wasn't good but it also was just like so fascinating <laughs> cop rock i've never heard of this oh my god this looks amazingly bad <laughs> yeah It's so fundamentally a how could that idea ever work where the answer is like, I mean, not great, but like (laughs) the when it does, it's kind of hilarious. I kind of love projects that are how could this ever work even at all? I'm I'm sure the answer will be kind of disappointing, but I don't know. It does have Clark Gable and Jeanette McDonald and Spencer Tracy. So yeah, you could do a lot worse. They've got a stacked deck. So we'll see we'll see what they do with it. And until then, this was a great movie. <laughs> Goodbye everybody. Bye. Look what. That tuba player. Well, now I've seen everything. <laughs>